Hey, everybody. Welcome back to Gear 30 on the Blister Podcast Network. I'm Jonathan Ellsworth, and you can check out everything we're doing and reviewing over at blisterreview.com. Today, we've got Ted Ligeti, the two-time Olympic gold medalist and five-time World Cup champion in giant slalom, on the podcast today, talking about his thoughts on gear, walking us through some of the specific gear he uses today, and we get his really interesting thoughts on the current state of skiing and ski racing. This is a fantastic Gear 30 conversation, and even if you've never ski raced a single day in your life, I promise that you're going to find Ted's perspective really intriguing and probably really compelling. Oh, and at the end of this episode, we're going to be running our customary crashes and close calls story. And unfortunately for me, that means that I am going to be telling you about how I fractured my arm mountain biking a couple days ago. So yeah, there's that. I'll talk about it at the end. Okay, but in other, more fun news, yesterday we dropped the first episode of our new movie podcast called Blister Cinematic, and in episode number one, Cody Townsend and I revisit and discuss the 2011 classic NAR the Movie that, at the time, functioned as one hell of a tribute to Shane McConkie, and now the film serves also as a tribute to the late, great Rob Gaffney. So, to honor Shane and Rob, I couldn't think of a better film to kick off this whole new Blister movie podcast than starting there with them and talking about NAR. So, check out that episode wherever you get your podcasts or on our site. Again, the show is called Blister Cinematic, so that's what you want to search for in your preferred podcast app. Finally, this episode is presented by Boot Mechanics, which is our blister-recommended shop that has two excellent and convenient locations in Avon, Colorado, and a new and improved space in Golden, Colorado. With a team of professional boot fitters, all of whom are MasterFit certified and all of whom have years of experience, you are in good hands anytime you book an appointment. Their boot fitting service includes the full range of modifications and adjustments, custom insoles, full stance balancing and alignment, and more. They are ready to help you whether you are new to skiing or an expert. They stand behind every boot they sell, and you will receive a full year of unlimited adjustments from the date of purchase. Boot Mechanics also stock skis, bindings, and accessories to get you fully equipped for the season. So when traveling through or to the front range of Colorado or the Vail Valley on your next ski trip, be sure to book an appointment with Boot Mechanics to get the best possible fit from your ski boots. Boot fitting is by appointment only and slots are filling fast for this season. So head over to bootmechanics.com to make an appointment today and ensure that you have the best possible experience with your ski boots this season. And now, let's talk to Ted Ligeti about gear and other stuff. Here we go. Well, Ted, how are you today and where are you today? 
I'm doing great. Thanks. I'm in Park City, which it's already starting to feel like winter. <laughs> and uh, I, I wanted to kind of jump start this conversation. Basically, you know, we're kind of getting our first snows here in Crested Butte. It seems like a lot of mountain towns are. It made me really curious to kind of ask you what preparing for an upcoming ski season looks like for you. And so maybe what I first want to do is ask you kind of about summer and fall. What are you mostly up to in the like kind of true off season? Uh, for me, I mean, my day to day is really about my business shed. Um, we make helmets and goggles and protective gear. So that's like my day to day job. Um, and, you know, it has times that's crazy busy and sometimes it's not. And then um, alongside of that, working with Deer Valley, skiing in the wintertime up there quite a bit, mm -hmm. but also working with a lot of brands like Head and Carve and Shoes um, and GoPro. And so I have, you know, a lot of partnerships like that. So still busy doing a handful of things and some commentating um, for ski races here yeah. and there as well. So uh, a pretty broad variety of things, yeah. I guess. Well, and, and, and then, so that, that's answers the kind of work part yep. of the question, but in terms of fitness, in terms of you coming in from a fitness or training point of view to feel ready for an upcoming ski season, when do you start thinking about that? Or are you somebody that's kind of, you're, you're kind of always on it and you know what I mean? Like some people take time off. Others kind of don't really. But so that's what I guess I'm curious in July, August, September, what are you doing on the, the training or fitness front? My world has changed a lot on that <laughs> in a couple last couple of years. Um, obviously, it was extremely different when I was racing a few years ago um, and for the previous 17, 18 years before yeah. that. Um, and now mostly it's just like mountain biking and doing stuff um, in the mountains with friends and kids mm -hmm. i do a little bit of lifting here and there just to, like keep my body in somewhat tune especially like on my back like yeah my back was pretty messed up after racing so that's one of the things i do i did like actually a fitness program with apple fitness plus a couple years ago so like it's actually still on their on their platform so you could see a little bit of like what i wrote there is like a fitness plan if you're interested in in it but i mean honestly like, a lot of that stuff like a lot of core um with my back, like being as beat up as it is, I do a lot of foundation work and, and stuff like that just to kind of try not to throw myself into a pain spiral. Yep. And like, I mean, I imagine you're going to probably be making your first turns of the season in what, two to three weeks? Um, I guess right now I don't have any plans to travel anywhere for yeah. snow. So it depends on when, uh, when the resorts open here yeah. at Deer Valley. Otherwise I don't plan on going to Colorado last year. I was in, uh, Europe for about 10 days this time of year sh shooting with carve. So not doing that right now, but, um, yeah, pretty soon I'm actually jonesing for it. You know, it's, uh, always like the first world cup of the year just happened and in, in Solden. So that's mm -hmm. like always a time when I'm like, Ooh, yeah, like it's time when I was racing, of course, I was already deep into it, but now it's like always fun watching from the side. It gets you uh, definitely more peaked up and, and perked up for, uh, for the ski season. Mm -hmm. and, and so this is kind of maybe the last question I'll ask along these lines, but I, some years ago, kind of got in the habit, I guess, 
when I'm coming into a ski season, you know, there will have been a lot of mountain biking and kind of general lifting stuff, you know, that's kind of, that's year round and then mountain biking in the summers. But coming into a ski season, having come into a whole lot of ski seasons at this point in my life, I always really want to have very specifically my barbell squat, my, my <laughs> barbell squat kind of at a, at a specific place. Right. And this is all very relative, like for, you know, one individual to another, but like, you're, talking about you're like one rep, one rep max or something. No, or? <laughs> honestly, for me, it's more of a, like, frankly, like eight to 10 reps. And, and so I'll say, yep. I mean, I don't, I don't care. It's like, if when I'm, when I'm doing a, full depth kind of what I would view as sort of a perfect squat, even with just 225 pounds for eight to 10 reps, that's yep. when I feel like knees and the rest feel solid enough to start getting into hard carving where, right, you can have, you, you can yep. dive an edge into the snow, stuff can start getting weird skis are going everywhere there's a lot of torque on knees that is my like single we weirdly <laughs> i'm not i'm not saying this makes any sense but i am saying it's true i wonder for you you've mentioned like your back if you have any kind of benchmarks like that where you just feel you want to come in making your first turns of the season feeling a certain way or at a certain level or if it another answer might be like no i let those first days just be nice and easy and that's when i actually start sort of the build uh, I mean, now it's very different. Like when I was racing, yeah, I had like certain benchmarks. I knew like where I was every single year for various lifting and exercise like metrics. So now my science side of things or the exactitude of that is extremely different, but I kind of like, I know if I'm like able to, I have a bunch of like kettlebells in my downstairs that I, you know, I, I acquired over the course of a handful of pandemic years and, and racing and all that. Yeah. Um, so I know if I can like, you know, single leg deadlift, that's the, like the main, the 70 pound ones or two of those. And if I can uh, do that in like a piston squat and stuff too, then like I should be good. Yeah. So in that side of things, but skiing's funny. Like I'm not worried at all about like my lower body strength. It's like how the back like holds up to those forces for me. But honestly, like, the only way that I know it's good is like, is skiing because there's nothing that really replicates <laughs> the, those kind of forces and pressures and, you know, shearing force and all that stuff. Yeah. So as much as I try to like replicate that, um, just working out and I don't do that intensely or that calculated like I used to, but there's nothing quite like actually getting on snow to see where that feels like. Yeah. It, to me, it's actually one of the things I really enjoy about early season skiing is like all the steep, techiest, gnarliest stuff isn't open. It's not available. Yeah. So get on those groomers and just like enjoy. Start getting the feel back and all the rest. And I, I actually kind of like that part. Yeah, it's, uh, for sure. It's like easing into the pool. <laughs> yeah. Well, from there, something I'm very curious to ask you about is your ski boots and how similar or different your whole boot situation and setup looks like today versus when you were out there you know trying to win gold medals uh my boots set up so when i was racing i would have a slalom boot a gs boot and a speed boot so and they're all like very different actually like for most of my career they're actually even different molds so like not even 
remotely similar. And if I tried to ski on my GS boot and slalom, it'd feel super weird and funky and wasn't really workable and would put me in kind of a weird body position. And same thing if I tried to put my slalom boot in GS or, or, or my GS boot kind of worked in speed, but it was a little bit too aggressive. So, you know, across like all the disciplines, I was on something very, very different. And then, so my boot now is kind of like, a it's more of like a stock setup. Mm -hmm. I would say it's still like a race boot. Um, still like the full thing. It's just not, uh, it's not nearly as stiff. Um, and then also like one kind of interesting, I put a ton of stack height. Like, so over the course of my career, like we were first allowed to have, I forget the, if it was like 60 mm -hmm. millimeters or 55 millimeters of lift on our boots. Mm -hmm. Um, and then went down to like 42 over the course of my career. So I, gone back up to those old school stand heights so i've got like you know a softer race boot with massive lifters on the bottom of them with a virum lifter too so that's i mean the main main difference um and otherwise yeah not doing anything too crazy i mean i was always lucky that my feet are actually like the perfect feet for a ski boot i never had to have any crazy work done i just like when I was racing, I would ski in a 25, five. So I'd have to punch the toe a little bit, but now I just ski in a 26 and it's like straight out of the box fits and works. I mean, it's still tight, but yeah, it's nothing too crazy, but just, just like a ni nice, you know, high stack height to really be able to lay, lay it over on, on some mid fat carving skis. <laughs> yeah. So, okay. So this, if, if, if we may stay on this for a sec. So are you happy now you talked about having three very different boots for three different disciplines and now when you get to go out and maybe who knows you're ripping some groomers to start a day maybe you end up off piste at another part of the day are you happy and comfortable now sort of doing everything out of a single boot or are you still sensitive enough where you're like well my one boot now is still set up best or it's it's most optimal for this type of skiing but i don't mind it too much in other parts of the mountain let's say i would say my current boot setup is like optimized for everything but skiing an injected race course <laughs> Fair. <laughs> so so yeah it's very good like i mean the park city town series actually went on that boot because i was like I like don't feel like I can smash myself back into my race boots. Um, and I'm feeling pretty comfortable on these. I haven't skied on those. So I, you know, even for the town series races, I, I, I still just go on my, on my free ski boots. So if I were to try to go race for real, I think it probably wouldn't be the optimum setup, but it's great for, for powder skiing. It's great for ripping on groomers. Um, so it's, it's good for all those pieces, I guess. Like, it's not good for touring. It doesn't work for that, but, yeah. um, everything else it's, it's good for. Hmm. And so then I'd love to hear you just say a bit more about the three different boots you'd have and like what you, and you said, if I wasn't in the right boot for the right discipline, it would feel really weird to you. Just help break that down for those of us who maybe were never in uh, well, your shoes uh, to kind of understand, especially hearing you say like even boots coming from three different molds is probably pretty, pretty wild. Yeah. So, I mean, I guess to like say what my setups were like in GS, my setup was like there kind of what I originally came to head on. And then I had it cut. I had like 
down cuts and then back cuts and I had carbon fiber up the back of it. Then I had all these spoilers. So I was in like, it was a stiff plastic, but it was like, it moved forward really smoothly without like bulging too much on the sides. Like, so like the power transfer was like smooth and even, but I was also like kind of locked into like a forward shin angle. Um, so that worked great for GS, like in that dynamic position, but like yeah. in Psalm where I wanted to stand more upright, I couldn't stand upright really in that boot. So yeah. I like was forced in kind of like a lower, lower hip position. Um, so in Slom, they like, they developed a more like, I would say it was more like a Nordica Doberman esque like boot, um, that was more upright. And so that's kind of what I used in Slom. And then Axel and Yonzer developed a more speed related boot. And, and then I sized up for speed actually to kind of help like dissipate the pressure. And because mm-hmm. like turning was my strength, I kind of needed a boot that allowed me to like glide easier and like wasn't as touchy. So mm-hmm. You know, I could like use my strength of like turning really well, trying to like push hard and like create speed and radius, but also like kind of dumbed those skills down a certain certain way so I could kind of let it run more on flat. So, you know, each one of those wouldn't have really worked across the bar because like I tried to ski, but actually the two most similar probably my speed and my, in my solemn boots, but my speed boot wouldn't have been nearly reactive enough for, for solemn and, and vice versa. And, so, you know, everything is very different tailored to, you know, the event I was doing. Yep. But you're saying that for speed events, you would actually bump up to a 26.5 for those and then 25.5 for, for slalom and GS. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, and like 26.5 is still tight. Like that's what I use right now. So it's not like I'm in a really <laughs> loose, like slippery boot. I'm just like in a boot that, so I would like my... In 25.5, I would have a liner that I took all the padding out. So I was yeah. basically just using like the leather piece of it. No padding, no foam, no nothing straight onto plastic. Um, and that like, like I said, my, my foot is like really good inside of a ski boot. So I didn't need to like do anything but punch the big toe. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas in speed, like I would just use like a, you know, standard race liner with the pat, like cork padding and stuff in it. So that would just like take a little bit like the direct pressure off a little bit and honestly like when i first started racing in the world cup i was in a 20 26 and then i start i downsized a few years in so yeah i mean that's really i guess the the reasoning for that it wasn't like i was slopping around and in my speed boot i still unbuckled my boots the second i crossed the finish line (laughs) um and would take them off right away after but uh it wasn't uh it, it wasn't quite as a, a touchy feel as, as my tech boots were. Great answers on this. Um, this brings me to our next kind of gear topic. And I am very interested in talking with you about this. This piece of gear and a company you've been working with for a bit now, Carve. Tell us a bit about this product and what this is, what it's supposed to do for you. And maybe a bit on how you got involved with this in the first place. Yeah. I mean, over the years in the course of my career, I mean, I've seen a lot of like ski instruction gadgets, gimmicks kind of out there. Yeah. And um, I mean, I've often approached by like giving feedback on all these things. And I was like, yeah, very skeptical on these, th- this type of stuff. And then I guess it was last summer, a mutual friend of myself and Carve asked me just like have a conversation with those guys. And I started talking to them. I was like, oh, they kind of like 
are on the right track, at least in their thought process. Then I was up coaching them out hood uh, last summer and they came up there. They're doing some stuff with the US ski team on some data collection and whatnot. And I got on and I was like, oh, actually, like it does measure things in my skiing. I know about it. Like because I was like even fresher off my like most recent back surgery, like my left leg is and was a little bit weaker. And it like immediately picked up like my outside ski pressure was 3% lower on that side. And then like, I just had it on like the coaching side of things. And I was like, Oh, like I always worked on having, you know, my shins parallel. So like they call that edge similarity. And like, it gave me like a good tip in it and said like, pretend there's magnets between your knees. And I was like, Oh, that's actually a good way of thinking about that. So like, just like in the instance of just like playing with it at hood, I was like, Oh, actually like they are onto something. And like, this is actually measuring skiing in a way that actually makes sense and allows for it to be coachable. Um, it's not just like the sum of more, just like a thing on the front of your boots or a thing on the skis or whatever it was like, this is like a scent, you know, sensors, you seize, seize your, uh, feet in 365 degree motion, you know, edge angle, pressure, G force, all these things It's measuring things that matter. Um, and so I was like instantly impressed and then, um, started working with them on, you know, improving the metrics, improving the coaching. We have a, I have a coaching program within it as well that I help them on. And so, um, yeah, just thoroughly impressed with like their team and what they're doing on the hardware, but also the software side of things. And, you know, continually we're trying to iterate and figure out ways to, to coach people better. Um, and I've seen like it do amazing things on a bunch of, bunch of people in their skiing. And, um, and it also like gamifies skiing in a way too. Like, I think for somebody, if you're out there on a groomer day, like it kind of is like a, if you're with a friend, you can like see who's getting the better ski IQ or whatever, like metric you try to put, put out there or, uh, also like it kind of gamifies if you're out there skiing by yourself and like gives you something like constructive. And, um, so kind of like, not that skiing needs to be more fun or interesting, but <laughs> this like helps add like a layer to it, especially if you're like a tech oriented type of person. Hmm. Say a bit more about what is this ski IQ? Uh, ski IQ is kind of like their metric for seeing how good of a skier you are. Um, like putting you like, in the proper positions, it, like, well, no, ski IQ would just be like, okay, you like good, bad, or medium. So it's like a number scale. So like I'm a 170 ski IQ. It's like, whereas like they say the average skier would be a hundred. And, um, so like it, if you go take a run on it, it'll like shoot out what your ski IQ was that run. And, you know, if you're skiing, you know, like smashing turns around that are, you know, sliding out the tails, you're going to have a bad ski IQ. And if you're railing arcs, it's going to get better. And if you rail on arcs where you're pulling like a nice tight radius and you're getting high edge angle and your, you know, your shins are parallel. So the edges are similar and all these, like all these metrics start going together and you get a higher and higher score. So I've never seen somebody who, you know, skis above a 150 IQ that I'm not like that person freaking rips. Huh. Like, so it does like gauge and there's like, you're somebody who's like a hundred. You're like, yeah, that's looks about like, that looks about right. <laughs> um, so it is like actually a pretty good metric on saying how good somebody seeing how good somebody is skiing is. And of course, like if you're going down something really steep, it's hard to get a good ski IQ versus something that's a little bit easier. But then again, on like a green slope, you can't lay it over hard enough to get a high one either. So, I mean, it's slope dependent, of course, um, which is actually something like we're working on is like using the GPS data, pa pairing it with like 
the trail maps to like understand like how difficult that slope is. Um, but also like the sensors can tell you how figure out how steep a trail is as well. So all these things are kind of paired together to, to get a more accurate picture of one skiing and also like help coach you on a variety of terrain. Hmm. I think when you were talking about kind of your skepticism of some of these devices coming in, I would sort of put myself in that camp or, <laughs> or, and, and maybe something else is like, I spend enough time in front of a freaking computer during yep. work day and work nights that man, by the time I'm able to like get out of the house and go get on a bike or get on, you know, on a trail run or go skiing, like I'm so happy and ready to not be sort of looking at more tech. And yet I am 100% certain that if I were to use something like this, I would be identifying kind of like what you talked about. Oh, look at that. You like are, you know, pressuring the right leg way more than the left, or just things are going to emerge in terms of patterns that are things you kind of want to know about. If yeah. like, turns out like skiing with better technique as opposed to worse technique kind <laughs> of actually matters a whole lot. <laughs> like, uh, to the, to the, the better you are, the more fun it is, right? Yes. Yeah. I mean, it, it <laughs> yeah. is. I think like not every activity is like that. I do think skiing yep. is very much like that, right? Um, yep. And so I am, I mean, I am going to check out the product this season and, and just sort of see, but, and probably will be horrified by what I learn, but <laughs> it's like, well, the more horrified you are, it's like, there are things to work on, right? That ultimately it's like so i i'm i'm intrigued i'm intrigued yeah. by this and i and i think like this is what i was when i asked you about ski iq it is doing what i imagined which is it is starting to help you understand like yeah dude you're sliding the minute things let's say get too steep on a groomer you're sliding out the finish of every freaking turn right um like there's that kind of sweet spot right the like hero angle i don't know what it is yeah. exactly but where you're just like i'm confident enough i'm not picking up so much speed because this groomer is so steep where i want to start cheating finishes yeah i think that's some of the information that i'm would pick up on or this system would would um share yeah absolutely i mean you can also make it as technologically intrusive as as far as like it could be telling you every single turn how well your edge angle is um or giving you just feedback when you get to the get on the lift or you could just have it running and then when you're done skiing you get to lunch you're like oh what's it saying about my skiing and then they'll kind of like filter you some tips so like you said like for me most of the time i just like have it in the background and i like, just look at it like also as like the competitive like oh did i get the best ski iq on the this run or did i <laughs> Did I improve on that regard or just like those like metrics are fun to like play with and you don't necessarily have to have it in your ear telling you what's up every run. Um, but it does give you at the end of the day, some, some good feedback as well. And then there's like some video coaching within the app and, and stuff like that as well that like, yeah, maybe isn't something you're going to use on the lift, but maybe for some people it is. Um, so you can get as like, techie nerdy as you as you want to get or you can have it just kind of in the background and let it let yourself do your thing and then kind of get some feedback at the end because that's like that's like the tough part like for me i was racing i had coaching and video on every single run i really ever did 
Huh. It's like that feedback loop for me was short, you know, but for you, you probably, I don't know when the last time you got a ski instructor yeah. at a ski instructor, but you know, for most people who are good skiers, once they like exit one and get a ski instructor, like their path for improvement is only like feeling it out. That's right. Um, and the feedback loops there become really long and few and far between. Maybe you ski with somebody who's a good skier and you ask them, them some tips, but this, like you can get, you know, you can tighten those feedback loops. Um, and I think that is really valuable because like most skiers, they reach a plateau and then they're having fun. It's great experience out there on the mountain. But like I said, like you're talking about like, Oh, there's this, the steepness where you're like going to start sliding your turns. You have the hero steepness. Well, my hero steepness is pretty steep, <laughs> you know, like <laughs> I can go rip arcs down, like something that's really, you know, steep and the better you are, the more you the situation you do. And that makes the sport more fun. So to be able to, yeah, like I said, tighten those feedback loops for people that they can actually start to break through those, uh, those plateaus I think is really valuable. And also like, you know, you could buy 10 of these things for what it costs to go get a private lesson. (laughs) (laughs) Interesting. Yeah. Do you have a sense of what, I don't know, let's take a thousand skiers, sample set of a thousand people. So, you know, a bunch of different ability levels and the rest. Do you think most skiers are struggling with the same, like two or three issues, or is it, it really depends on, it really depends a whole lot more than that. I think you like have to break it into like, oh, beginners struggle with these subset of things, these two or three things, intermediates struggle with these couple things, experts struggle with these couple things. I think that's like more the case than just like all skiers in general. Yep. Um, I would say like all skiers in general, like one of the hardest things I think to do is like skiing with parallel shins, um, which is something I still worked on. So like that's something a beginner can work on. I mean, not somebody who's in a wedge, but like beginner parallel skier to an expert being more precise on that, like trying to have everything mat your edge similarity matching perfectly, which, you know, allows you to arc the inside leg, which allows you to pull a tighter radius, which allows you to be more balanced going to the next one, which you know, just keeps you in a better position. And like that, that, that whole feedback loops allows you to do more things arcing on steeper slopes. And so, um, so the beginner skier can just go on a cat track and like do railroad tracks, trying to like have the shins parallel. And, you know, you can feel like you're driving your inside knee into the slope and, and, uh, like pulling your foot back, like those cues will feel different or be different yep. coach differently, but kind of aiming at the same type of, uh, like type of technique, I guess, but you're in different parts of that journey and, and trying to nail it. One last question. I think that, the carve sort of technique and technology you're talking about on groomers, that seems really clear. We ski a lot of like completely fucked up terrain here in Crested Butte. And I'm wondering how this sort of translates or transfers. And I know you've talked about like at carve, like they're, they're looking to fine tune and, and tweak some of the reports or feedback that you might be getting. But um, I don't know, just your thoughts on, I mean, you, you are known, I mean, I was thinking about this, like there's very few individuals in like modern ski racing that are more associated specifically with carving a turn than you, right? Like yeah. the, and, the, <laughs> yeah. and your story, right? Yeah. Like your story on that. And, and you and I recorded a conversation. We were saying it's been way too long, 
but I think we we dove into that story a bit more, and we'll we'll include a link to that uh, conversation in the show notes. But does this just feel like two different sports to you when you are, you know, let's say you're at Deer Valley three weeks from now, and you're making turns on a groomer, but then you do go get into some steep off piece, maybe some kind of mogled up weird junk stuff. Does it just feel then like you're in a different sport or does this all translate for you? Technique definitely translates. Um, that's, I think, one thing that's universal. Of course, like you tweak your technique, like if you're skiing in powder, you're going to be like more neutral and your feet are going to be pinned together. And yeah, you're just like, you're going to ski more two footed than you are on like a steep, icy like groomer. It's like, that's just like natural, but like the technique base is, is all there. And I think like specifically for carve, it is truly like optimized for improving your skiing on a groomer. Like that's like where they can collect the best data. Like if you're skiing moguls or really choppy stuff, like just like natural, like there's a lot of noise on the snow. Yeah. There's a lot of noise in the feedback. And so that'll be reflected in the data you're getting. Um, but also like, it still gives you, you can kind of suss that out, but you're not going to get your best like carve scores or you're like, it's not going to tell you you're skiing your best ever on one of those like choppy runs, you know, mm -hmm. but like the feedback is still carries over. Um, I think if you like get better ripping groomers, a, like that's what you get most of the time when you're out skiing, as much as all of us want to ski powder every day, it is not the reality of, of the world we live in skiing powder every day, unless maybe it's last year. <laughs> <laughs> right. Uh, but, but really like having fun on groomers is awesome. Like I, as much as fun as I had last year skiing powder, I wish I had a couple more groomer days last year, but it's like kind of fundamentals for doing the rest of your skiing, you know, powder skiing, you know, still having that technique is, is important. Um, and allows you staying in control in more situations as well. So, yeah. um, that all kind of transfers, even though they're kind of different realms. Yeah. Let's talk about skis. Walk us through what your ski quiver will look like this year uh so i mostly ski on like a 90 ish underfoot ski is kind of like my daily driver like the cord 93 is my, my daily driver so it's great on groomers and it's good on you know chunky stuff it's not going to be great on a powder day but it can ski powder and it's not perfect if it's super icy but i i'm pretty good at tuning my skis so it still holds up well when, it, when it's firm um, so that's kind of like my daily driver. And then I go on like a core 111 or core 105, depending on the powder day. And then, um, here and there, I jump in on, on, on their like e-speed pro if it's, you know, hasn't, hasn't snowed in weeks and it's, you know, really firm. Um, and then I go train with Park City ski team every once in a while. So I, I hop on the GS boards every, every once in a while, but that's kind of like the, the base ski quiver right there. Um, so, but most days probably will be this year. Most days will likely be on the core 93. Yeah. And I think like, I think everybody should have like that high eighties, low nineties underfoot daily driver. Like, cause that's actually like the width. I always have a hard time. Like when I go ski with people and they're like trying to arc turns on a 110 underfoot, you're like, oh man, you are just putting yourself in. Well, A, like kind of hurts your knees, just like arc turns on something that's that wide, but also like it's just hard to get the technique there and um hard to feel really feel a true carving carving turn there. So um I'm definitely a believer in a daily driver that's around 90 underfoot and it's you know awesome and crud and, and all that stuff as well. Um 
So not everybody is fortunate to have a quiver of, of, of skis, but um, at least something to have, you know, in the back, back of the mind is, is that's uh, definitely the most fun ski out there. Let's talk about tunes. Um, how picky are you these days about a ski tune? It totally depends on how, what the snow conditions are like. I mean, if it's been snowing, like last year, I didn't tune my skis all that often because it snowed six inches every other day or right. snowed six inches to a foot every other day. So it didn't really matter. But um, I, I mean, I tune my skis a lot when it's, when it's a little firmer the year before when it didn't snow that much, I would um, tune my skis a handful of times, not a handful of times a week, but a couple of times a week, just like having been a racer for all those years, like I could feel the tiniest burrs on my edge in a, in a, on my race ski when I was training or racing. And so I feel that stuff when I'm, when I'm skiing for real normally now. And so I, I keep my edges as is sharp, um, definitely much sharper than the average person would. And that's just how I like it. I mean, I like to go out and like lay over a hard, aggressive arcs. Like that's fun for me still. Um, so definitely tune my skis, you know, I'm not like throwing a four or five degree side bevel on there anymore, but throwing a, uh, throwing a three and, you know, still like a half degree on the base, but I don't really touch the base bevel all that, that often unless I hit something. So, um, yeah, still, still tuning them here and there. Um, and yeah, well-tuned ski is definitely an underrated thing. When you were racing, did you leave things like dialing in the tune or, you know, figuring out the best possible wax for the day or the discipline, did you kind of leave that up to your ski techs or were you kind of in there saying, this is what I really want to do today? You know, like, I guess the question is how much were you driving those issues of what wax or the exact tune versus deferring to ski techs? Like, well, this is supposed to be what y'all are the experts in. So for me, I never actually knew anything about what was happening wax wise. Um, <laughs> It just like, it didn't matter. I couldn't feel it. Yeah. He, Alex, my technician was on top of that. That's like, those are details that he was good at and knew about. Um, on the tuning side of things, we were playing with tunes all the time. I mean, less so the angles of it and more the grittiness of the stone he was using. Hmm. And also that would change like per conditions, like in Beaver Creek, which is like, you know, Colorado, really aggressive, grippy snow we went with like a really, really smooth stone, but also really dull in the tips and tails. Mm -hmm. So it wasn't grabby. Mm -hmm. um, whereas if we were in Alta Badia, where it was like crazy, crazy icy, it was sharp the whole way and with a rougher stone. So it had a little bit more grit to it. Mm -hmm. um, so we were adapting those kind of tuning situations for the conditions. And that's something we like both kind of learned through training over the years, like together is like he would like bring out skis with different tunes or like change it on the hill. And so I would feel those. And so like he knew what I liked and I knew, and we'd have those conversations. So, um, that was definitely something we were adapting race to race, but like he was really good at like understanding what I liked and needed. Cause when we were with, we rode almost like every single chairlift together during training, um, and spent so much time, like just sussing out all these details that like, I didn't have to like dictate that much. Um, he'd be like, Oh, I just skied down the, I inspected the course at Alta Badia and it feels icy up there. I'm going to throw a little bit, like I'm going to th 
you put a rougher stone on it. And I'd be like, yeah, cool. Good. Like, I think you're on, on point. Mm-hmm. So it wasn't like something that I had to be like, Hey, hey you just like mess this up. Yeah. You got to do this way. No, like he was on top of it and we'd have those conversations. But when you have a good, good technician, they are also in tune with what you like and what the conditions are, what, what is needed for the conditions. Yeah. Can you, this tough question, maybe I'm wondering to what extent in a given race, somebody having a better tune for the day or the better wax for the day actually plays a role in a victory or a podium placement. I mean, it seems like the number one thing is, look, you make one mistake on one turn. I imagine that's going to be the bigger variable. And I'm not talking about flying off course, but but just right. He or she who holds it together at every turn versus making a mistake on one or two, probably the bigger factor right there versus the tune or the wax. But I don't know what what do you how did you think about that through your career and or maybe you can speak for kind of racers and technicians in general on this issue. Honestly, I don't think I wax. It's important because if it's wrong, it's slower. Yeah. But every single tech, like all these technicians are professionals. They're getting the same like weather report. Yeah. They're getting the same like snow conditions They're You know, the factory, the, the wax companies are out there like doing the whole snow report. This actual company like head itself would do their own snow report. They'd, so like when it came down to it, like people were all pretty much waxing identical. Um, and yes, like somebody had a faster pair of skis than the other person because their technician put those work in, but just some skis are faster than others. That's just like the fact of life. Something just runs a little bit better. Um, so I wouldn't say like that those factors aren't like the deciding factors because those margins are just like so small. Yeah. Like you are fighting over like hundreds if you're fighting over any time in that regard yeah on the tune side of things like uh alex and i have made bad decisions i've heard of other people making like bad calls and decisions um and often like it's not even on tuning it's like oh i've went on the pair of skis that like didn't end up working i thought they'd work better for these conditions and that side cut or that plate or that binding setup actually didn't feel good it the conditions when it when race started happening, we ended up being different than when we were inspecting. And so ended up being a bad choice. We've had those type of things. So that's like, it can be a big deal, but you know, obviously like when you're racing, like your mental state of like how hard you're pushing and like the turns you're making and like the risk, your risk reward there is definitely like the bigger factor. And even like in those cases, like Making some mistakes isn't the end of the world as long as those mistakes aren't carried through over a long period of time or aren't too costly. So, like, I mean, nobody makes a perfect run. So, like, you know, when you're racing, I mean, you could feel if it was a big mistake, you'd lose some momentum or lose some speed. But overall, like, you weren't dwelling on perfection turn to turn as long as you're keeping up the momentum. Yeah. Yeah. Hanging on in recovery, uh, right? Like, yeah. Not about, yeah, not making every turn perfect, but recovering from every, every bobble, every, yeah. Um, yeah. That's how I describe my, that's how I describe my mountain biking, by the way. I just, <laughs> I just make mistakes on the way up and then I make mistakes on the way down. That's how I describe it. And so this is like a much higher 
performance <laughs> level description maybe of ski racing, right? Just it's all just yeah, managing maybe mistakes uh in the moment and whoever can do that. I mean, they're not yeah, it's not even mistakes, it's just like there's just naturally in little imperfections like not every I mean, World Cup courses are it by design very difficult. Um they're not easy, they're icy, they're bumpy. Um generally you know the lights flatter it's darker they're they're just like they don't they're not conducive towards like skiing your best you know like (laughs) there's conducive for you skiing hard and like pushing what's possible on those conditions but they're not like most of the time like i've seen training video of you know like marcel hersher where i'm like holy shit like that is unbelievable like or even like of myself, I got like my training video, like training days, like on optimal conditions. You're like, oh man, like you see some people and you're like, holy cow, that's some unreal skiing, but that's not what race conditions are like yeah. very often. So yeah, I mean, the best skiing on a race day is this, this is the best skiing for those conditions. And yeah, uh, oftentimes that's not a, it's the highest level in the world, but it's not the highest level that these athletes are capable of when it's a, uh, when it's fully optimized. Yeah. And I, and I guess that's when I sit, when I use the term mistakes, yeah. that that's kind of baked in like the course yeah. pushing you into positions you would not optimally want to be in. Yeah. Right. And so you're, you're out of that. Maybe you're slightly back or that you, you know, and just yeah. correcting, correcting, correcting for, for all of the reasons you just said. Sound, sounds terrible. You, sh- you should, <laughs> you should probably, it's good. You retired. That's no, fun. That's like, that's what makes it exciting. If it was uh simple and optimal, it would, uh, would lose its, its zest <laughs> zeal, but I don't miss, uh, you know, throwing myself down a steepy bumpy out of Odin after 30, 30 guys have gone down and it's hard to see the ground and, and it just hurts, hurts your feet, legs back every turn, but you're trying to fight down and not lose too much time. So, yeah, um, those are days I don't miss, but the days where it looks nice, then I, I definitely miss those days. <laughs> Another topic, uh, on the gear front that, um, I don't know I'm sort of newly obsessed with this one. I had LASIK eye surgery. I, I looked this up the other day. I think that was in 2006. And I got to say for me, that was some of the best money I've ever spent. Like loved it went great, but LASIK will, you know, it, will diminish over time. And I, this was 2006. I can't believe how well it's held up, but I don't know if that's why, if, if, you know, the eyes are just going a little bit and I think they, they have actually, I did an eye checkup a few months ago. Things are good, but not, they were like, great, great. I don't know why, if this is the thing that's made me so freaking sensitive or increasingly sensitive to flat light and low light, but I'm fucking sick of it. I hate it. It's my least favorite thing. I, I have said this for years. I would far rather ski crap snow with good light than like really good snow in bad light. I just kind of hate it. So this leads me uh, to ask you about where you're at with lenses. And I know that you guys at Shred have been working on some new things because I am completely brand agnostic right now. I don't care. All I want is the lens that will make the flat light, low light stuff best for me. That is like a mission I am on for this season. 
But I am curious to ask you kind of what you've been working on at Shred on this front. Yeah. So as you say, like skiing flat light sucks um, for like when I was racing, like the difference between like flat light, if like a cloud moved in front of the sun and when it was sunny, like that was seconds. Like that's a huge deal in racing as far as like a quantitative measure. Um, so I was like very sensitive to the fact that like if you could come up with a lens that was better, that is a performance enhancing mm-hmm. product right there. Um, so that was like a really important, I mean, part of the impetus of starting shred was like, Hey, I didn't want to look like a 60 year old German tourist in my, in my gear and all the stuff out there from like the big brands or more free ride stuff, like had a tiny field of view and crap lenses. So that was really like the original impetus for starting shred. But then, um, my partner went to MIT. So we started working the MIT, um, a bunch of years ago. This is probably eight years ago when we've made our first contrast boosting lens, which, um, does exactly that built, like boost the contrast in the snow. And we did that in their labs there on snow and off snow and in the lab testing. And then just a year and a half ago, we released our contrast boosting lens 2.0. So it's, you know, our own proprietary dye we've developed with MIT using both like human and AI to like map out, do image mapping, Mm -hmm. um, on flat light conditions. And then, um, we also found is like using really low percentage polarized filter at a specific angle. All these things like truly boost the flat light, the ability to see in flat light, which is, uh, which is huge. So actually like on our world cup team, like when it becomes shitty, low light, flat light situations, our racers do 11 places better, which is like, yeah, it's a big difference. Like to be able to like, go into like the Olympic GS in in China, that's like the first race we had them. Hmm. You know, one of our athletes, Matu Fave, who was a world champion the year before, hadn't been in the top 15 really all year and was third that day because it was like nasty and like hmm. he had the confidence to go hard. Hmm. Um, and so like it makes a big difference there, but also like I think all these like lens companies, they're like photochromatic or they have the magnet lenses or all these different things. Like you don't want to fuck around with your lens during the day. Um, and so what's cool about our contrast boosting lens 2.0 is that actually polarization filter, even though it's like we designed it with flat light in mind, it actually cuts out the glare when it's bright outside. So it's like a one lens to feed all lens hmm. situation, which is pretty amazing. I mean, I'll, like, like you said, you hate going out there when it's flat light. My wife who grew up skiing, but never raced or anything. Like if it's flat light, she's in the lodge. And this last year using them, she's like, oh, did it get sunny out? And you're like, no, still shitty out. <laughs> um, and, and it makes a big difference. So um, I'm with you that, yes, flat light is, is definitely a big problem to solve. And um, we've definitely, you know, created the best lens out there for that specific light condition. But also it's an amazing lens for, for everything. So wait a second. It's not photochromic. It is not a transition lens, but you sort of were saying some things. It's let me hey, let me try you on that one again. Come back on that front. Yeah. Is, so photochromatic is a myth in skiing. No photochromatic lens actually uses the light range because you have even if it's dark out, I say dark in air quotes. If it's dark out, you have snow below you and you have clouds above you that are reflecting light. So you're not in a true light, like a light box. So dark is relative on snow so your photochromatic lens will never get 
it's brightest because it's never dark enough for those lenses to change on the snow. You know, if you're driving with photochromatic lenses or you're going into a building um, for like sunglasses, that works because they're actually truly light and dark situations. On snow, you don't have light and dark situations. You have very gradient. You have gradients in the small bandwidth. Like that's just the reality of, of the world. So yes, when it's super bright out, you'll get the maximum bright range, but you'll never get the maximum range for low light situations. We've been testing this for years and it just doesn't work. So like you have a lens that works well in the sun and looks, works okay when it's like medium, but it doesn't work well for the low light situations. It just doesn't get down that low. Um, so that's just like a factual myth out there that these photochromatic lenses can't do that at this point there's just too much reflected light in the environment on snow um whereas and also like polarized lenses for the most part haven't really worked because they've been designed similar to like sunglasses are and like you want to see the you want to see some glare on the snow for texture um, to help for some texture and all those yeah so um for our polarized filter it's at like it's at a different angle it's like a our own proprietary angle and it's like low percentage polarization filter. It's not a full polarization filter. You know, like when you do like the polarized test with a pair of sunglasses where you look at your phone yeah. and you like twist your phone and you're like, oh, it gets darker, lighter, or if like they're fully polarized, it goes fully black at a certain angle. Um so you can do like do the same thing, but it's like a low gradient there. You're never gonna like get a full blackout if you're looking at your phone. You're just gonna have like a slight change. And the same thing like when you're skiing like on a full polarized lens like on a sunglass, like you look at the sky and it changes colors as you tip your head. Like this won't have that same level of effect, but it does have a little bit of that, but it's like angled perfectly to try to bring out the contrast in the snow. And so you still see like those icy spots, but it's not like cutting out all that texture. So is this in part a generalization to say that you think some companies are just going sort of too overboard with the polarized element? But it's like you're talking about sort of lessening. You don't want this grand polarizing effect for reasons that you've you've talked about clearly. Yeah, diminishing returns. Yeah, I think most companies when they do the polarized stuff are just plugging in their lens, their sunglass tech into a goggle lens, Hmm. which is yeah. So they're like, like I said, like we were like, you know, with using with MIT, we're able to do thousands of iterations, you know, using the lab and AI to like come up with this. It's not like we did 10 iterations and samples. We were like, you know, iterating on thousands of times to try to figure out what the right angle is and what the right percentage is. Um, and it's not just like plugging in our sunglass polarization filter. Um, it's, it's definitely more, much more nuanced than that, which is, uh, which is hard to do unless you're like, in the lab trying to like tweak for that exact um instance okay but for those of us who really hate flat light yeah you were talking about (laughs) with the contrast boosting lens 2.0 yeah yeah that it actually like you're claiming is it's great for flat light terrible light but it actually works pretty well when the lighting situation improves what if i said i don't care about the improving light situation i want optimized for crap lighting well, what I'm saying is we're optimized for crap lighting, but just by happenstance in that optimization, we still make it so it's not like blowing your eyes out in the sun. Okay. So like traditionally, like the optimized for flat light would be like a really 
bright rose or a yellow lens and you get into the sun and you'd be like, ah, yeah. like you'd yeah, be squinting yeah. and you'd be like not able to see anything because it's too bright. So we're cutting out that, um, we're cutting out that glare level. Like our VLT percentage, I think is like, when you look at our VLT percentage, it doesn't reflect the true VLT because we have that polarization filter in it. So like it looks VLT wise, like your normal, like kind of standard all condition lens, but it is actually a brighter look lens, like through the, for the eye, I look, I feel, but because it has that polarization filter, it reaches that larger range. Hmm. Okay. I'm still pushing you on this. <laughs> Because yeah. I'm wondering if I no, need to I, wait. I, uh, well, you need to go out there and do it. Yeah. Let's, well, I mean, I, well, I'm the, November, that. October conditions are, uh, are kind of the perfect time because that's like, you're in the shadows and it's like the low light yeah. situations. Cause you know, the sun's, you know, the daylight is so short. So it's actually a good, good test time for you. Okay. This is fair. I just, am, I'm saying if I can get any improvement yeah. just for the flat light and I give up, I mean, look for most recreational skiers where Turns out clouds move and the rest, like having a bit of versatility is certainly a positive. I'm yeah. just real hell bent on finding the thing. I will switch lenses if I need to. I want the thing that is optimized for the terrible lighting. And, and you, you yeah, 11, I, 11 places better on world cup when it's flat light, you know, for, for shred athletes. Yeah. I mean, it's pretty, pretty wild. And that's with this contrast boosting lens 2.0. Yeah. Okay. All right. I look forward to, I look forward to spending yeah. some time on it. Uh, I will, I will certainly report back. Hey, I want to let you get going, but before I do, um, would love to get any thoughts of yours on just kind of what you're seeing in the race world broadly construed. Are these particularly interesting times where maybe do you think are the most interesting things happening right now in racing? Just your, your thoughts on some of this. I mean, I think racing, like I think this and racing is going through like leadership has changed over the last couple of years. It's gone from like a very old school antiquated and they're trying to current leadership is trying to pull the, the sport out of the stone age, um, which is not without it's like hiccups. I mean, right now, just like in the real weeds of it, like TV rights stuff, like, every single country owns their own TV rights yeah. and it's impossible if you are trying to create a campaign around an athlete to use race footage from races because you have to talk to 10 different rights holders to really do anything or 20 different rights holders, even like depending on what it is. And so it's a really like archaic system for promoting the sport. Like you could never have a Netflix drive to survive show, something like that in ski racing, because you can't get the rights of all those. You'd have to have like a 20 person production team just to like figure out the rights um it just wouldn't work so they're trying to that's one big piece they're trying to work on um i think like one thing that's been on the forefront lately is like the climate action of it yeah. um which is important i think like nobody was on fists a couple years ago about that but now they are which as they should be like this needs to be a leader in that um i don't know if like world cup is where all those sacrifices need to be made mm -hmm. like the world cup by its design needs to take place in the world. So 90% of the world cup happens within a six hour driving radius of central Europe. So it's pretty well optimized in that, but like coming over to North America twice 
shouldn't be a big deal. You know, we need to have races in the U.S., which is the biggest ski market in the world outside of the first week of December. Like we need to have races here in the, in the middle of winter. Um, that's, I think, important for our sport and yeah. important for the fan base in the U.S. Um, and is flying 100 people over to North America the most climate friendly? No, it's not. But no, are people getting on Formula One for flying cars all over yeah. the world every weekend? Like, yeah, the highest level of sport should be cognizant and recognize these things um, and should be leaders. But they also like can't you the only way to make it 100 percent clean like is to have one location where we go to all year long. And that just doesn't like make it. You can't like fully optimize there. You should work on things like there are things you can work on. I think the sport, if you want to like see how to like on racing side of things, like make it cleaner in that regard is like, oh, you don't want people like traveling the world for training. Well, then make all fist races not be able to start until January 1st. And then you don't have all these kids going to Colorado and to Europe and to Chile in October, November, December to try to get training because they raced first week in December um, or they race in November even like that would, that is like the 99% of people that are actually like putting on, you know, flying around the world and, and trying to ski in all these exotic locations to get ready for races in November, which a kid doesn't need to race in November. They should race January until April or like even later, like in the U S like there's a lot of places you can race in May. Like, Let's go to Mammoth and, you know, do a couple of weeks of racing there. Um, and, you know, then the skiers are also psyched to have you. Um, so I think those, there are more real ways to solve this problem as like a sport and an organization than just like harping on the World Cup. Like, like, like Solden was getting a lot of grief, like that glacier is entirely transformed since like I raced there. My first race there was in 2000 five and i mean that glacier is unrecognizable now to then i mean the only place there's really snow on that glacier is where they put a blanket over it so they can actually hold the race hmm. you know um and they did some excavating work so they could move some boulders out of the way so they could use less snow and they blow less snow like and they got a lot of crap for that and do they need to race the last week in october is that like absolutely necessary no but like when do ski movies release their movies they don't release them in december they release them in october november like people are excited to ski you know in late october november and so like as the premier ski entertainment product or at least in racing or it's i mean it is the most popular worldwide we need to service people who are excited about skiing and that means having races and maybe not the last week in october but First, certainly the first week in uh, November. And that's, if you go in any ski shop, they're not selling mountain bike stuff anymore. They're selling ski stuff right now. Like that's important for our market. So yes, like climate is an extremely important goal and should be extremely important and is, should be the forefront of our decisions as a sport, but also like let's create systems that for 99% of the participants, it's eco and for the world cup trying to move as much as in this way as you possibly can while also being a world cup, <laughs> like being the mm-hmm. highest level of sport needs to have the highest level of product out there. And that doesn't optimize always. 
the two things aren't always optimized together, I don't think. What do you, I mean, you also though did talk just a few minutes ago about kind of shifting things. And this has been a big, a big thing of mine. Like I would love to see, like, right. We've got ski areas. Everybody's trying to open in the U S around Thanksgiving. And I'm like, every year it breaks my freaking heart when we are closing ski areas here in Colorado, (laughs) we're usually closing ski areas when the base is at its highest point of the year. And I absolutely agree. Why can't we like collectively start making this shift? I, I, when I was like, wanted to start clapping when you were talking about sort of January to April or January to May, I've, I've heard people, well, people aren't, you know, they're, that's not what they're used to. And I'm like, well, okay, but like the world is the world. And like, we are seeing shifts in snow patterns in the Northern hemisphere and the Southern, like really, this is an insurmountable thing that we can't as a snow sports industry collectively come around and just saying like, this is the new reality. And maybe opening day is, you know, a few days before Christmas, not Thanksgiving. I, I don't know. I yeah. have not had high level uh, conversations on this front. I just, and I, and I'd like to, but yeah. W- thoughts. I absolutely agree. I think collectively as a sport, we need to realize that like Thanksgiving is not a ski holiday. Easter is a ski holiday though. Mm-hmm. Like yes. Christmas is a ski holiday. Yep. Um, but like people don't think Easter is like, thought of as a beach holiday like let's make easter let's claim easter for skiing yep um let's i totally agree like the ski industry needs to do a better job of i mean i like ran actually this up like the totem pole up at uh altera was like come visit our beaches like if you go to like the ski for skiing in deer valley is awesome like april it's like they have the ski beach there it is awesome like squaw like or palisades like all these like there's so many places that the spring skiing is awesome and honestly for most people it's a far better experience like you're not cold (laughs) um like it's yeah the sport needs to like recognize that like it's just it's it's going to be a long educational campaign i think like the ski areas are realizing that that's important because like also like those days are less expensive to get off you know like yep. the marginal cost of you know adding days at the end of the year is way less than the cost of getting open a few days earlier mm. um so i'm the sport needs to move that direction i think like every marketing aspect within the sport needs to push for for a later season and and i guess like to counter my like ski racing <laughs> world cup argument is like that is part of that too yep um but I think like as collectively as a sport, we need to, to go, you know, be happy with a later start and go a lot later and try to educate people on, on how awesome, like it's, this is a vacation sport. Like most people who yep. engage in the sport are traveling from somewhere to go do it. Like how do we engage those people to don't go to Mexico, come to Utah or come to California or come to Colorado as a way to experience the mountains at a time frame when they're normally thinking beach. Um, so, um, I think that's, that's going to be a battle. It's not like a cheap advertising campaign battle, but, but everybody should engage in that. Um, because yeah, that would be, that would solve 
some of our issues as yeah. a sport. Yeah. Well, interesting. I, I hope this gets momentum over the next year yeah. or two. And, and um, it just makes sense. I'd love to see it. And you're right. Spring skiing is freaking awesome. <laughs> it's, yeah. warm, it's warm and there's snow and a base and uh, longer days. Yeah. And um, so anyway, I, uh, yeah. I don't know. We'll, we'll make you the, the marketing director of this, of this campaign <laughs> maybe, but yeah. um, Hey man, I want to let you get going. Um, but it's, it's really cool to connect again and, and uh, really appreciate the conversation and, and it. I, I feel now remiss that it's been so long from our first conversation to this one. So I, I'm not going to let that happen again. And uh, yeah, really, really cool to hear you run through your approach to gear and how you're thinking about that. And then to end with some very macro issues uh, as well. Yeah. So appreciate it, man. Yeah. Thank you. This is fun. Awesome. Have a good day. We'll talk to you soon. Thank you. You too. Have a good one. All right, folks. Well, as I told you at the top, I'm going to be telling you about, well, my very recent crash. It happened this past Sunday. I was mountain biking. It was going to be my last mountain bike ride of the season before it was time to click into skis. And I was riding down in Gunnison, out at Hartman, and it was a beautiful day. Everything was going great. And I was on a little section. If you're familiar with Hartman, it's called Skull Pass. And I messed up on this little section, and I was like, that was dumb. And yeah, it's a techie section, you know, for sure. But so I ran back up, did that section again, and basically just completely stuffed a front wheel. It was kind of a techie hard left hand turn to step up to drop stuffed my front wheel was clipped in didn't unclip so kind of did the superman over the bars i'm still clipped into the bike came down really hard on my left hand and then went to arm and then to elbow somehow completely destroyed my derailleur in all of this and um you know hit hard it hurt a lot and thought like, okay, I may have done something to my arm pretty bad. Hopefully there's no like compound fracture, but it was also kind of late in the afternoon. It was like, we need to get out of here. You know, it's going to be getting dark soon. And so we had to kind of do the hike a bike thing back. So anyway, got back home, checked out the elbow and arm and my elbow was really, really swollen. And so was my forearm. And so Anyway, I, I had a really full, busy week. The arm hurt a lot, but I was like, let me just see if what this feels like on Monday. And bottom line, the last couple of days, yeah, the arm was feeling better. So I went and got x-rays yesterday, Thursday afternoon. And yeah, turns out fracture of the radius. The good news is I think I'm going to be fine pretty quickly. I think this is one of those... If I heal quickly in three weeks, I'll be good. And so that's great. But I'm bummed I might not make... Well, the doctor told me I'm not supposed to ski opening day. So we'll see if I take her advice. But this is one of those occasions where because I do have Blister Plus, I waited a couple days mostly because I was incredibly busy this week. But I was like, if it has radical improvement, okay, maybe I don't need to go. But it was clear four days after there's an issue 
And so I wanted to go get x-rays, see what we were dealing with. The elbow is not fractured, but the radius is. And um, there's that. And to be honest, looking at my past history, if I hadn't had Blister Plus and I didn't know how much this was going to end up costing me to go get checked out and maybe be told I should be getting a surgery, I probably wouldn't have gone. And this way, I'm covered. Those x-rays are covered. I'm supposed to go back in like 10 days to get just to get more x-rays, see how it's going. That's going to be covered too. Frankly, the crash was bad enough and hurt enough. I could have done something worse pretty easily, needed to go into a cast or go get surgery. And if that had happened, we're clearly pushing into the $10,000, $15,000 cost range. If it had happened with Blister Plus, it would have all been covered. So anyway, folks, that's why we talk about this stuff. That's why we're going to keep encouraging you to check out this injury insurance we have. Just go check it out. It's just a math problem. If you have phenomenal insurance and you know what would happen if you tweak your knee skiing or riding or hurt your arm mountain biking, just figure out what your deductible is. Figure out what it's going to cost to get an ambulance ride. Are you responsible that for that? What a backcountry evacuation is going to cost? Just do the math on this. We just want to get the people who this would help. We want to make sure those people know about this and that they get signed up. If you're listening to this, you're probably one of those people. Seriously. So just check it out. Do the math. Figure it out. Sign up if it helps you. So yeah, folks, I'm kind of bummed, but I'm mostly honestly thinking right now this could have been worse. I might miss a few days of skiing at the very start of the year, but then I should be totally good to go. And all things being equal, all I got to do is buy a new derailleur. So could be worse. Anyway, that is it for this edition of Gear 30. Thanks to all of you for listening, for hearing those stories. Thanks so much for Ted Ligety. That guy, man, we got to have him on more podcasts because he is so good at articulating his thoughts and explaining some fairly complicated ideas. We need to have Ted on more. Also, of course, want to say thanks to the strikingly handsome Justin Bob for producing this episode. And again, folks, if you haven't checked out episode one of Blister Cinematic, go do it. We're talking about the movie NAR. What's not to like? All right, everybody, have a great weekend, and we will talk to you again real soon.